Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show, broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. I'm also the founder and director of the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which travels the country supporting local animal welfare groups after a New York City premiere every October, alongside my annual New York Cat Film Festival, brought to you by Dr. Elsie's. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show was also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their cats. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, no hide, and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaran or Maisie will eat. Just the other day, I was reading yet another article, some big overarching sweeping article about people and dogs and the human-animal bond and the great scientists at work. And there I see quoted one of the real greats in the field, a gentleman I haven't talked to for years on the show since he wrote his wonderful book, Love is Dog. It's Dr. Clive Wynn. He's the director of the Canine Science Collaboratory, big word, at Arizona State University. And He's just a man who's been looking at dogs and people for way longer than all the hip, groovy, trendy Johnny-come-lately. So, Dr. Clive, it is wonderful to have you back. And I wonder, as a university professor and a man who's looked at people and dogs for so long, what sort of feeling do you have about all of these other science canine university labs popping up? Are you glad? Do you think it's a little bit too much? Do you feel like it's copycatism? How does it feel to you? Oh, Tracy, I'm thrilled to pieces. I'm totally thrilled to pieces. I mean, I think I was the first person to set up a lab to study humans and dogs in the United States, at least in, in recent times, when I founded the Canine Cognition and Behavior Lab at the University of Florida 
getting on for 20 years ago now. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't the first of this new. I mean, of course, dogs have been in psychology since Pavlov. Right. Right. So, right. so it's not like dogs are an entirely new idea. <laughs> but um, but they've been forgotten by the largely forgotten by the mid 20th century. And then at the very, very end of the 20th century, two people, Brian Hare, who's an American now yes. at Duke University, but at the time he was in Leipzig, Germany, and Adam Miklosi, who's a Hungarian at a university I cannot pronounce the name of. In, <laughs> Neither uh, can I. In Budapest. They, as far as I know, completely independently kind of rediscovered dogs uh, in the late 1990s. And um, and at first there was those two, and then I started in Florida, and then gradually more and more have come in. And as you say, Tracy, now we have, it seems like a new lab pops up somewhere in the United States almost every week. And I'm totally thrilled. I mean, I, I think that the questions about how we live with dogs are urgent and important to us and to, and to our dog friends. And um, and there are bigger implications, too. I mean, we live in a world where human beings are modifying, modifying the environment and causing so many species to go extinct. But in among that, there are a handful of species who do really well out of living alongside human beings. And obviously, dogs are the number one example of that. And so if we can understand better how dogs are able to live with people, we might be able to help other species get along with us and survive in this world that we're modifying as well. So it's not like it's, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to pick favorites uh, here and now. I mean, obviously, some of these labs I find more useful and interesting than others. But overall, the fact that psychologists and biologists and goodness also, you know, like anthropologists and archaeologists and historians and all sorts of different kinds of scientists and scholars are taking an interest in the human-dog relationship. I totally love that. I'm totally thrilled that that's I, how it's I figured out. you would be, and, I'm, and I imagine <laughs> that some of them were inspired by you, which leads me to, to wonder, is that the only thing you teach at Arizona State University? Is it just about canine science? At the moment, the only thing I teach undergraduates is is dog behavior. That's my big undergraduate contribution. And then at the graduate level, I, I sort of rotate around. I have a few topics. One is uh, is applied animal behavior, behavior problems in animals. It's true. I, if, if, if the students leave it up to me, then we do spend a lot of time talking about dogs. But yes. we can talk about behavioral problems in cats and other species, horses, if people want to. It doesn't even have to be domesticated animals. Uh, so I have my applied animal behavior graduate class. I have my history of psychology graduate class. I'm just, I'm just, you know, such nice. a, I just love the history. I, I think you cannot really understand where you are unless you know where you've been. Yes. And so I love teaching history and I love learning about history. Um, and uh, sometimes I teach animal cognition, you know, which is, yes. again, if, if usually a graduate level class is directed very much by the interest of the students who are in the class. But again, if they don't, if they don't speak up and push me in some other direction, then the animal cognition class ends up spending a lot of time on dogs as well. That's really, it's really interesting because that was why I asked if that was the main focus, uh, particularly of your undergraduate classes, because I would think that people coming into college first or second year, or even as they get into the third and last year, that they would love to take a class on dogs. When I was in college, there was no such thing. 
And it was sounded sounds much more interesting than studying Beowulf. I mean, I understand it's not <laughs> in the same department, but uh, do you find more and more students each year uh, cl- banging on the door wanting to get in the class? Oh yeah, that's a well. So it's 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 uh, it's a fully online class, so we can really stretch it out. At the moment, I mean, you have to bear in mind that Arizona State University is the largest university in the United States with over one hundred fifty thousand students. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, I knew it so, was very prestigious that at one time it was very large and then it wasn't yeah. just large, but really prestigious academically and, yeah. and, and athletically, I think. I'm not sure about the athletic part. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I, I, <laughs> I, yeah, so, so I have, I cap the online dog behavior class at 400 students each time I teach it. And the beauty of the online is that it's scalable, you know, in principle, right. you could have thousands. But in practice, because there's always some portion of students who need uh, personal contact, and there's just a limit to how much email I can do. So I find 400 students is about my maximum in terms of keeping on top of of the email and and so on. But um, but it's but it's you know it's a lot of fun. I mean, on the one hand, the online means that I don't get to see their happy smiling faces, but on the other hand, it means that I can include things that would be much more difficult to include in a live classroom, like interviews with other experts in the field, which I've been able to record over the years, and you know, footage of of free roaming dogs and things like that. So, so. Um, but but is it online because of COVID, or was it always no, online? No, 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 no. No, it was designed from the get-go as an online class. So this is probably seven or eight years ago now. This predated COVID. This is not one of these. I mean, some of them work fine, but I have my own experience of teaching things online because of COVID that were not designed to be online, which is, you know, kind of painful. Yes, Uh, yes. No, no, this was designed from the ground up. I went into a TV studio for the recordings of lectures. Oh, no kidding. and uh, uh, yeah, and then um, and then we went around finding, as I say, I have I have my own video interviews, some in studio, some one time at a conference in a in a quiet corner of a conference. I interviewed a colleague and um, and and then, yeah, other footage that we found from other places and that the university got the rights to use and so on. So a fully, you know, professionally online from the ground up type of class. That's interesting. I didn't know that that even existed. And I would think that it that it would also be good for students to see your smiling face. I mean, not just that you see theirs, because there must be something very detached about having an online undergraduate course when people are already disconnected enough, in my view, socially. Oh, I, I, I agree. I agree, Tracy. I mean, it's not it, – it, wouldn't it be lovely? But on the other hand, I could never do that for 400 students a semester – and some, you know, sometimes some of the students, for whatever reason, I, if a student asks to meet with me one on one, then we meet one on one. And some of these students are all around the world. Certainly they're all around oh, the I United see. States. I've Zoomed with, you know, ASU, Arizona State has an arrangement with Starbucks that anybody who works more than half time at Starbucks can take our online classes for free. And I've Zoomed with Starbucks baristas in Texas, in New England, you know. And uh, if it weren't that we're doing it online, they just could never be part of it because they're living far away and students as far away as Japan. So, oh, that's so very on, nice. On the one hand, I think of my own education in London, where I was privileged to often be in classes of just a dozen students and you yes. could really have a heated, uh, powerful discussion with yes. the professor and the other students. And 
that's not part of what we're offering in this particular class. On the other hand, you know, there were only a dozen of us in some of those that's classes. That's right. Here, here I'm able to reach hundreds. Hundreds and, and turn away hundreds more. They'll have to come back next so, semester. So I so just I have to identify who I'm talking to because one of my listeners said, you know, if I catch this only halfway through, bless her heart, she actually listens on the radio, which is a strange and marvelous concept given that this is a broadcast over the air. I'm talking to Dr. Clive Wynn, director of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University about how long he's been doing what he does and how many other people are doing it and who's taking advantage of it. How about the word collaboratory? That's quite a fancy word. Where did, how did you come up with that? Well, that's a good question, Tracy. I forget now where I first heard the term, but when I moved to Arizona and I, I needed to come up with a new name, or at least I felt compelled to come up with a new name for my group, and I thought about I thought about what's most essential about what I do, and I and I I like the kind of punning punningness of collaboration. Yes, yes. Collaboration, and you've got laboratory. And I yes. thought, yeah, that's a really nice. I like a it. Nice term because it captures two of the essentials of what I do. I am I am a scientist. I do, you know. I mean, a lot of what we do is in people's homes and so on. But still, and all, laboratory is is part of the part of what identifies. Uh, the place where a scientist works. And yet, on the other hand, collaboration, it's all about communicating, collaborating, reaching out. And more and more, I value the connections I have to not just other kinds of scientists, but just other kinds of scholars. You yes. know, I love how in the humanities now, you know, when I was a kid in high school, which is a long time ago, uh, we studied, you know, dead white men. That's what history sure. was. That's sure. what, that's what, uh, so much of the humanities was. And in the intervening, goodness knows, 40 plus years, people's attention, scholars' attention has, has turned away, first away from just men to take an interest in women too. Women were there, just as many women in history as men. And then away from just white people towards people who were colonized and, and around the rest of the world. And so then in the last 20 years, Humanities scholars have undergone what they call the animal turn, that they oh, turn to actually pay attention to non-humans in history and non-humans in geography. And this is so, so rich. You know, I've been making friends with these people. At first, their professional language is so different from my professional language that at first it can be difficult to understand each other. But then once you get talking, especially if you have a beer or a glass of wine, you can <laughs> to begin to realize lighten thing this, up that you're actually engaged, excited by the same questions. How do people, how do people and animals live together? Last summer, last summer I went to a conference on animals in ancient Egypt. And this was the first time that I'd ever showed up at a conference where I could not possibly contribute. You know what I mean? Yes, I that's fascinating. Audience member, which our academic conferences, you don't usually have an audience in that sense. Usually everybody at an academic conference is also a potential contributor. But for That's the first time, I went to this conference. It was in Naples, Italy, and it was about animals in ancient Egypt. And it turns out that there are four or five people in the world who've made it their specialty to study dogs in ancient Egypt. No kidding. I, I befriended them, and I just it was just so... So interesting, Tracy. You know that they have images from ancient Egypt, you know, like tomb paintings. Right. There are three or four of these images that show people kissing dolls. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely mind-blowing. Wow. 
And that, you know, I mean, that really tells you something about a relationship that people had with dogs four, five, six thousand years ago. It's just absolutely mind boggling. I really want to go there myself, but it's not it's not an easy place to get to. No, and, and they probably wouldn't. You'd have to have a, that same Egyptologist, canine Egyptologist, take you because the average tourist tombs oh, yeah. don't show oh, those dogs. I think just to, to come full circle in the conversation you said in the beginning that history is so important and yeah. understanding how each of the things that are part of our lives came from something earlier. And just your overview of how history itself is looked at, starting with old white men or young white men, and then not so much only men, and then not so much only white, and then not so much only human. I think it does give us such a joyful sense that we are broadening our look at the world and at ourselves. And the idea that we thought that we generally, the, you know, the, the, not the royal we, the communal mm -hmm. we, thought that, well, and in those old days, cave times and Egyptian cave times, people just used dogs for hunting or guarding. But it turns out they use them for kissing, just like we do. <laughs> and I think that's just so wonderful that that's what jumped out at you. Sure, Absolutely. it's interesting that they were by their side and possibly got buried with them and Perhaps they wore jewelry and, and collars, which I'm pretty sure they did, fancy oh, yes. ones, you know, full of gold yeah. and so forth. Yeah. But best yet is that they kissed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your book, Love is Dog, was way before its time, just way before its time, the idea of that canine-human bond and how much the mutual love fest that it is, the power of it. I, yeah. think, I think you've really brought forward wonderful ideas and had them emerge and seen them blossom in all kinds of directions. It must be an exciting time to be you sitting in the chairs that you sit in, in a university level. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's thrilling. It's really thrilling how this is. As a uh, when I started doing canine research, as I say, fifteen to twenty years ago in Florida, and I started training PhD students. You know, you worry as you train PhD students, the, the major reason to get a PhD, I mean, there are, also, there are other possibilities, but right. the, one of the major reasons is to become a professor. Correct. And, and I worried, you know, how many professors of dogology do the universities of North America need? At that time, <laughs> I was one of just two or three in the whole, in the whole United States. Yes. So is it, is it ethically defensible to train people for a profession that doesn't appear to exist. That's so and wonderful. Yet, thank goodness it's expanded way faster. I mean, all of the people I trained have got jobs and, and many, many other people besides because it's expanded way faster than I ever would have dreamt. Well, I think that that is a lovely note on which to end that Dr. Clive Wynn sort of thought, well, build it and they will come. Grow them <laughs> and they will flourish. And you have done such great work and continue to. And your enthusiasm and joy is infectious, whether it's to us or to your lucky students. Thank you for being here and for the great work you're doing on behalf of canines and their humans. Well, thank you, Tracy. It's been, it's been great chatting with you. I hope you enjoyed the show. There's a few more special companies that make the show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. 
I want to thank Wonderside, founded by a woman entrepreneur who discovered an effective natural way of using plant-powered products to repel fleas, ticks, and other parasites on our pets instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes it possible to protect your pets, children, and property without the chemicals that could be harmful to all of us. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer only to their own high standards. Finally, we're supported by Magic Fabric Pet Throws, developed by a husband-wife team whose expertise in the textile industry solved the problem of their big hairy dog, Molly, who got on the couch in bed with them, despite her wet fur, muddy paws, and shedding. Sound familiar? They created machine-washable Magic Fabric Pet Throws to trap pet hair, dirt, and moisture letting you enjoy dog and cat cuddle time without sacrificing your clothes, furniture, or decor. You can buy direct from the creators at magicfabric.com. 